Well, welcome to today's episode of the Independent Future Podcast, and I would like to welcome Grace Gwynn. Welcome, Grace. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, we are going to be talking about your career, education, because this is an education podcast. We'll also be having a think about plans for the future. First of all, can you tell me about your current role at Number 5 Barristers and the work that, that you do there? So I specialise in personal injury, clinical negligence and family law. So my practice is split pretty evenly between civil and family. In my civil, I represent both claimants and defendants, usually in road traffic accidents. And that can range from injuries that are quite minor or maybe just car repairs up until quite severe injuries. And then with my family work, I do both public and private. So public is when the local authority gets involved because of the welfare concerns of the child. And private tends to be the child arrangements when a couple has separated. So it's quite a quite a broad practice, but it keeps it interesting and dynamic. I was going to say, is it an interesting job to do? Yes, I absolutely love it. I'm in court every day. Things happen last minute, especially in family proceedings. And it really keeps you on your toes. It keeps you interested. And it's nice to have a balance between the civil law, which is very legal, quite dense, but also the family law, which is very evidential based. So it's a really good balance. And is it a a nine to five job? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'm not an early bird at all. So if I'm in court later on in the day, I will work later on in the evening. But then, for example, today I was in court for half eight this morning. So I had to leave the house just before seven because the court was an hour and a half away. And then I've got a full day trial tomorrow. So I'll be prepping way into the evening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, was becoming a barrister something that you always wanted to do? Ever since I was 16, I'd seen this courtroom drama where there were barristers featured on it. I'd never seen a barrister before and I couldn't believe people were getting paid to argue for a living. And that to me was fascinating. So I was always good at putting my points across and people were making livelihoods from it. So I just Googled what to do. I realised a law degree was compulsory, but then for me it was a decision whether to do an English or history degree and then the conversion course after or go in as a straight law degree because there was a risk. I wouldn't enjoy a law degree because I'd never done it before. So that was a bit of a risk, but ultimately I knew I had to get it done at some point So I just bit the bullet and did it at 18. Did you enjoy the degree? Loved it. Did you? I really did. Don't get me wrong. There were some parts that were really dry, Mm. as there probably is in every degree. Mm. But for the most part, it was the right choice for me because I got it done. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think from experience and having spoken to others, it's less intense doing it over three years than it is doing it over a nine month conversion period. And it meant I could get the ball rolling quicker. Do you think that your education and the school where you were, that they actually prepared you well to be a barrister? Yes, I do. I think I was very fortunate at KHS because we were always taught to have a voice, to articulate ourselves well, to be passionate. I remember debating in in various different topics. It wasn't just a debating club. It, it, it featured in a, in a lot of the arts, English, history, languages. We were taught, and under Sarah Evans, to really push whatever opinion you had and be quite forthright in that. And I remember there being one lesson that Sarah Evans taught us, which was quite uncommon for her to teach. It was about the ability to maintain eye contact, to give a strong handshake, to be articulate and eloquent. 
And it was brilliant for that being taught by Sarah Evans because she spoke like the queen and she was so eloquent and so articulate that it really rubbed off on us girls. I think coming from an all girls school and the special school that KEHS is, we were taught as women that our voice was just as powerful as our male counterparts. I also think the important thing coming from an, an all girls school was it was that support. You felt brave and confident enough to articulate yourself in front of your peers. And it was a really supportive environment. And then when I expressed to teachers, including yourself, that I wanted to go into law as a career, they were well equipped to support you in how to navigate yourself through that journey. Now, you mentioned there about Sarah Evans. Could you tell me if if, if there's a maybe a, a teacher or a number of teachers, you don't have to mention me, who <laughs> had the biggest impact on you? Were there any teachers who had a real, real impact on you at, at school? I think Sarah Evans is pivotal to, to my journey, but also I can't not mention Hannah Proops because I had her as a form teacher pretty much well, a lot of the years. She was my sixth form form teacher, but I also was a, a massive uh, thespian at school. And the skills that she taught me in public speaking, you know, pace, projection, tone variation, the ability to articulate yourself, to speak confidently in public, they're all, although she taught me in a drama sphere, they're all transferable to my everyday practice as a barrister. And I think sometimes there is a tendency to view drama and theatre as a soft subject, when actually the skills that you're taught in that subject have been crucial skills I've needed as a barrister. In that question, you kind of hinted at the skills that you need to succeed in your line of work. Could you just sum up again what you think those particular skills are to be a barrister? I think there are two categories of skills. There are your practical skills that are necessary to be a good public speaker in court. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, the aim of your job is to persuade a court in line with your client's position. And there are technical skills that you need to be persuasive. So speaking confidently, being able to maintain eye contact, being able to listen to evidence that's being spoken in court, process it, respond accordingly. You know, it's all these technical skills, being able to be versatile in your approach to people. So to talk simultaneously to a judge, but also a lay client who may have learning difficulties. It's those kind of technical skills. But also for me, what I think is important for a barrister are more characteristics. And that comes from resilience, perseverance. It's very often underestimated how much rejection a barrister goes through in order to become a barrister. So my personal journey, for example, it, it took me three years of multiple rounds of applications, hundreds of application forms, dozens of interviews and dozens of rejections to become a barrister. And the problem with being a barrister or the difficulty with you can only apply once a year. So once you've applied and not been successful in the application window, you have to wait a full 12 calendar months until you can go again. And it's soul destroying because you panic and you think, well, how am I going to fill a year of my life? And you want to make that year count by doing things that will make you stand out when you go again the next year. So for me, for example, I was rejected straight after bar school. And then I decided to move to America for a year and work as a as an attorney out there thinking that experience will make me stand out. So it's always with the goal in mind of becoming a barrister. So I think it's it's not only resilience in applying those, resilience in your day-to-day. -day. So I've had some days in court, which have been awful, you know, and I've ended up in tears. And it's the ability to go home, brush it off, 
spend your evening prepping another case because ultimately you've still got another client that needs your commitment and concentration and then potentially going in front of the same judge that just shouted at you the day before or the same opponent who's just been vile to you the day before as if nothing's happened and a clean slate so it's continuous resilience I would say. Was there ever a point where you thought you might give up in terms of becoming a barrister with all those you said hundreds of, of rejections and having to wait so long was there a point where you thought I can't I just can't do this anymore yes there was one specific memory that stands out to me I'd been rejected from a chambers that I had a good relationship with I'd done work experience there I'd applied the year before and they they encouraged me to apply again saying we really like you we just think you need a little bit more experience So I'd gone out and worked really hard that year to gain as much experience as I could, went back. And from my point of view, I was then well armed with everything they needed of me. And I still got rejected. And I remember thinking, I have nothing else to give. You've got everything. I've got all the academic qualifications. I've done more work experience than the average applicant. I've really gone back and taken the feedback on board. I know your chambers inside out because I've been doing work experience there since I was 20. And I just thought, maybe I am not good enough. But I knew I was because I'd seen barristers in court. And I remember watching them thinking, I could do this. And I'm not even at their level yet. And I felt confident thinking, well, if they're a barrister, then I certainly can be. So I had to wait another year and then apply again. You ever consider going back to the States and being an attorney in the States? Would you have done that? If I hadn't got pupillage when I did... I think I would have because I really would have struggled with what else to fill my time doing. And the state's experience was fascinating and really helped my career. Mm. What I didn't like about my experience of the states is I was very alive to the fact that discrimination was a lot more present in their justice system than ours. From my experience, there were times where I didn't feel comfortable being an attorney in that system because I could see firsthand the different treatment between a white defendant and an African-American defendant. And I struggled with that. From a civil point of view, because I did criminal defence and personal injury out there, it felt a little bit corrupt because we were able to coach our clients. So the evening before court, they would come into the office and we would do a mock cross-examination. And we would say, that's a good answer. That's not very good. Let's think about saying it like that. Whereas in England, there's there's none of that. You don't know what your client's going to say until they get in the witness box. And it's a lot. Why don't you do that then? Because I'm thinking about, you know, from the point of view, you know, when we used to have inspections at school. Yeah. Saying this to our listeners, but we used to get the students in and say, you know, here's the answers we we need you to give the the inspectors. And the same with the staff. And we got everything, all the answers prepared because it just it just wasn't worth taking the risk. Why don't you do that in in the English system? Because from my opinion, it's not honest. It's not reliable evidence if they're being spoon fed. I wasn't there at an incident, at a crime or a collision or a family event. I wasn't there. So who am I to tell them what to say? They have a witness statement that they've written with their solicitor and they've served it to the court. And that is their base of their evidence. So before we go into court in a civil or family matter, they will have seen their witness statement. I get them to read it. I say, are you happy with it? Is there anything that's not correct or you wish to change? And they say yes or no, but more than likely it's no, that's right. And they get into the box And then it's up to the other barristers to cross-examine them. And I have no idea what the questions are going to be. I can take an educated guess. Yeah. 
but I have no idea what my my client's answers are going to be. Sometimes they stick to the witness statement, which is brilliant for me because that's what I'm anticipating. And sometimes one little question will be asked that completely exposes something or throws them off. But that's where you get real evidence. Right. It's coming from the source, not from a lawyer who three years after the fact is saying, oh, that's not a very good answer. Is that the approach of all the barristers then or is that just your approach it's the approach we're taught to take oh, right. okay. so it's the I don't know because I've never sat in another client in another barristers conference as a practitioner when I did work experience that's always the approach I've seen being taken and it, it just is the most ethical approach in, in my opinion right okay when you've had all these rejections just coming back to the rejection issue and then you do get the role that you've got this fantastic role is there ever a point where you look at the other person, the other barrister who is either defending or prosecuting, and you think, oh, God, they're better than me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say 90% of the time I'm against a man that's 30 years my senior. Some of these people I'm against have been doing it longer than I've been alive. And so it's easy to be intimidated. But what I've learned and what I've taught myself is that I have every right to be there as they do. You know, I've proven myself objectively to barristers and I've earned my place at the bar. The problem is sometimes I may be overly aggressive, but maybe that's because I'm trying to prove myself. Because from my experience, what I found is without that, people do try and take advantage. And a few times I've been left upset following a conference with my opponents thinking he's trying to take advantage and I don't know whether it's because of my age or my gender or a combination of the both of them both do you think there's a glass ceiling in terms of women getting to the very top in your field as a barrister no because there are some brilliant women at the top of their game some of the best judges in this country are women some of the brightest QCs are women So no, I don't think it's a glass ceiling. I just think it's a harder route to get there. And when you look at the statistics of pupils and junior barristers, between the genders, they're pretty evenly split. But then as barristers make it all the way up to QC level and then to being a judge, the numbers of women start to reduce rapidly. Mm. And that's the issue. And we, it may be a childcare issue because our our job is not a nine to five. If you're stuck in court on a trial because something's gone wrong, who gets a who gets a child from school, from nursery? So many times I've seen women, and it is always women. I've not seen a man do this in my experience, frantically texting under the court table in the middle of a trial, trying to facilitate someone else going to collect a child from daycare or school. Because mm. our this, our job is so demanding, it's also why women are putting off having children until they're more secure. Mm. You know, I'm self-employed. There would be, if, if I was to ha- get pregnant now, there'd be a, a fear from my end that I would lose my practice because solicitors would forget about me in the nine months or so I had off. Whereas if I wait a few years till I have a really strong, solid foundation, that people would then still want to instruct me when I'm back at work. I also think it's an old boys club. And I did a TED talk about this being this profession being an old boys club. Although it's gotten better, And I'm probably one of the lucky ones in this generation because it's far more equal than it was 30 years ago. You still can't escape the feeling that it is an old boys club. Do you look at certain women in law that are role models? 
I mean, there's a there's a key woman in law, Baroness Hale, who is the female icon for any junior or even aspiring barrister. And to follow her journey or to read the cases she's been involved in, she is a legal icon. But there are also people closer to home for me that inspire me. Yes, there are brilliant females in my chambers who are really formidable, intelligent, empowering women. But there's also people in my personal life, like my mum. You know, my mum has always worked hard. She's always juggled being a mum and raising children, but being a career woman as well. And for, for me, she pioneered this flexible working when I was born, so almost 30 years ago, insofar as she wanted to be a journalist, she wanted to carry on working, but also she wasn't going to sacrifice moments of the children. And she made it work. And this was before the whole, you know, working women, let's do all these uh, initiatives. She just did it on her own. But yeah, there are brilliant women in law and there are women to look up to. But we need more junior women coming through the ranks. Well, we've got grace, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope to be one of hundreds. The, the other thing I want to ask you, and, and I speak from somebody who comes from Yorkshire, who's embraced my Yorkshire accent. I have a sneaky suspicion it's also held me back in the independent sector in terms of going for headships. One of the reasons, potentially. I remember you with a very, very strong Brummy accent when you were when you were a student. It's not very Brummy today. Tell me about accents and, and being a barrister. I have to say, my Birmingham accent comes out more in my home life or when I'm angry, I guess. It, it's not a conscious decision, but I've learned over the years and realised that my accent diminishes when I'm doing public speaking and when I'm in court. Part of me is proud of the fact I can be versatile. Part of me is embarrassed of the fact that I lose my Birmingham accent because I'm very, I'm a very proud Brummie. I also think it's important in court for there to be diversity and whether that be race, gender and dialect. A lot of women I, I've noticed recently have regional accents. You know, I was in front of a judge last week that was a scouser and it was fascinating to see, but it's also important because they want someone that they can relate to and that's more personable to them. I think it's nerves that changes this accent because I promise you it's not conscious. I also don't know whether it's this 16-year-old inside me that's feeling inadequate to being a barrister. And so this is a bit of a front pretense and a bit of a characteristic to make myself seem more believable as a barrister, potentially. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> No, I, I've also recently uh, seen you quite a bit in the media. Yes. So I'm really pleased that you've come to talk to me, the host of the Independent Teacher podcast. Tell us about some of those media appearances. It started off in a, in a very interesting and quite important way. I was in a nightclub with my friends. So I was speaking to this very nice lady that happens to be a radio presenter of Heart FM. And I didn't realise that at the time. We got on really well. We exchanged numbers. And she has got quite a big following on Instagram. She is a very keen feminist. She's written books on feminism and women in the workplace. She's also launched a campaign through Parliament called Flex Appeal, which allows flexible working hours for working mothers. None of that I knew at the time. The reason we bonded is that she'd always tried to become a barrister back in her younger years and hadn't been able to get pupillage. So although I found her very inspiring, I think it, the feeling was mutual because she asked me what I did for a living. She saw that I'd done a TED talk and she was impressed that I'd become a barrister at a young age. Anyway, she put me on her social media as a young barrister that she'd met that was 
striving to break a bias and was a pioneer for junior female barristers. And after that, I was just inundated with requests from BBC Radio London, Sky News, all trying to just show shed a light on this and to give a platform. Now, for me, it was completely unexpected, but I'm keen to grab any opportunity I can. So I'm, I've, I've done a few media appearances now and I'm headlining a few speaking events about women in law, especially on the run up to International Women's Day next month. So it's all sort of been a, a bit of a perfect storm, really. It's the, the brilliant run up to International Women's Day. It's the fact that I've met a woman that has the same ideals as I do and the same ambitions. But it's also the fact that I think people are quite interested with the fact there's a female young barrister that's quite vocal about change at the bar. To any of our listeners who are thinking about a career in law, what would your top tips and advice be? My top tip would be keep going. Rejection is so common. And I think there's a tendency for people to think it's personal because it feels so personal. Ultimately, you're getting a panel of people that are saying, right now, you're not good enough. But what I'm fearful of is that people take that rejection and let it consume them you've got to keep going. You know, it took me three years to get it. I know people that have got it shorter, but people have got it far longer. Believe in yourself. Don't let anything hold you back, whether it's your race, gender, the way you speak, where you're educated. The bar is increasingly becoming diverse. And if you're passionate about law and you believe in yourself, then it may be a tough road and a long road, but you will get there. And I think perseverance, resilience and self-belief is key to a successful career at the bar. Do you think I should try out for it then? Absolutely. Grace, can I just say it's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you and talking to you about these really important issues. So thank you ever so much. And thank you for having me. Thank you. Is that a brummy thank you for having me or is that a posh thank you for having me? It's whatever came out. It's whatever came out. (laughs) I have no control. (laughs) Okay, thank you ever so much. Thank you. You have been listening to the Independent Teacher Podcast with me, your host, Susan Pallister, and my special guest on today's show, Barrister Grace Gwynn. If you like listening to this podcast, please consider giving us a five-star rating either on Spotify or Apple Podcasts.